to a special Calic Convention edition of the Weekly Appellate Report, the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding salient appellate and constitutional law questions. I'm Brian Cardile. And this week, as the Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles converges on Las Vegas for its annual gathering, I'll chat with plaintiff attorneys involved in three pending cases that stand to profoundly shape the landscape of class action litigation. One, the suit against Uber over its classifying drivers as independent contractors rather than employees. Another, the triumvirate of cases consolidated before the U.S. Supreme Court that present the question of whether the National Labor Relations Act scuttles independent arbitration clauses commonly found in most employment contracts today. And the third, before the California Supreme Court regarding whether courts may, under California lending law, step in to declare unconscionable certain consumer loans, here the tight pedal to high-risk borrowers and entailing steep interest rates. We'll hear first from Brian Kabatek of Kabatek Brown Kellner LLP, who represents the named plaintiff in the Uber misclassification suit, now waiting oral argument before the Ninth Circuit. He intervened in the litigation last year to object to a proposed settlement he and many other plaintiff attorneys deemed insufficient. The settlement was eventually rejected and the case went forward, though it's now met by another preliminary hurdle that needs clearing before the merits of the misclassification claim can be heard. Namely, Uber's defense that its employment agreement requires actions like this to be brought individually in arbitration rather than collectively in court. Here now to discuss both the merits of the classification argument and the arbitration clause enforcement question is Brian Kabatek. Mr. Kabatek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you've really become a, a central figure in the class action that's riveted the attention of folks around the country, attorneys, plaintiff and defense side attorneys uh, for the past couple of years, uh, O'Connor versus Uber case over the question of whether the company has misclassified its, its drivers as contractors as opposed to employees. Um, maybe we could dive in at the point where you, you joined on to this case. Um, you, you challenged a settlement that had been proposed in the O'Connor suit uh, somewhere in the, the neighborhood of a $100 million settlement. What, what motive you to do that, and why do you think the, the settlement was unfair? Frankly, I was sitting on the sidelines watching this for a while, and one of the reasons I was watching it was because I've been active in legislation in California, and California tends to have the most aggressive pro-employee legislation in the country. I often joke that there are 50 states in the United States, and there's the employment law of California and then the other 49 states, because California does tilt so favorably in, in favor of employees. And of course, the definition of the term employees is the centerpiece of this whole discussion. So uh, involved in legislation in Sacramento, pursuing my own cases on issues involving classification or misclassification, somebody designated as employee. I'm watching the Uber case um, evolve in front of me. I've been involved in other legislation generally involving Uber, but not employment issues, um, but was also well aware that Uber had uh, literally bought up every lobbyist they could possibly find in Sacramento for the purpose of lobbying their issues, including their employment issues. And then I see all of a sudden that, that the um, Uber settlement with a lawyer that had been pursuing this case for a long time had been announced at about $100 million, and um, I couldn't believe it. Now, of course, somebody listening to this and not understanding Uber and not understanding the Uber model or the number of literally hundreds of thousands, I'll say that again, hundreds of thousands of drivers, of people who have quote-unquote worked for Uber over the time, are involved, $100 million sounds like a lot of money, but it, when you consider the number of people that are involved, and when you consider that some of these drivers would literally be getting pennies um, based on the settlement or the proposed settlement, uh, it, it, it struck, it, it shocked my conscience, just just to be blunt. And because it, struck, it shocked my conscience, uh, I had been contacted by a lawyer who had been pursuing his own claims with Uber, who said, the first thing he said to me was, 
his claims were going to be gobbled up because even though this one Uber case was very narrow in what it was defined as, um, they had expanded the definition or were attempting to expand the definition to gobble up every Uber case uh, in California. Mm-hmm. Now, what really struck me about this settlement was, or this proposed settlement at the time, because it did fall apart, was um, Uber was not going to change its policy. They just were going to pay money and keep on doing what they had been doing for, for a long time. Uh, so we decided that it was appropriate to object because somebody had to protect the workers and somebody had to uh, protect um, and, and pursue what I think is maybe the most interesting cutting-edge issue in California employment law today. Before uh, squarely getting into that issue, I just wanted to ask what it has been like kind of jumping into this litigation midstream. As you say, it's a huge case involving hundreds of thousands of plaintiffs, a very large class, a very large issue. Now um, you're representing the the name plaintiff, um, but the the attorney who represents the class who had proposed that settlement is still part of the case. How has it been sort of working on this case with her and being a part of it after the case has been ongoing for a while? Well, it was one of the first times in my career that I've ever done anything like that because I usually abhor um, objectors or people that are trying to derail settlements. But there is a valid purpose every now and then for objecting to a proposed settlement because it doesn't protect the workers, it doesn't protect the class, and that's truly what I felt here. Um, so when you say what's it like to work with a lawyer who had been handling this case for quite some time, um, I, I probably would say that's not the words I'd use to describe it, working with, in other words. It wasn't working with, it was... Um, sadly working against or working contrary to. And that's um, a generally unusual principle for me because I do like to work with lawyers who, who are pursuing the same kind of claims or trying to protect workers or trying to advance a, a novel theory. And here I found myself in a um, juxtaposition with her. Uh, getting to the heart of the question here, what would the, the classification of Uber's drivers as either independent contractors or employees, obviously of some great significance, the, um, that determination bears upon the sorts of benefits that the drivers are, are entitled to. Um, what, uh, what, why, in your opinion, should Uber drivers be, be deemed employees rather than independent contractors? Well, I don't think it's that simple, but I do think that it's probably one of the most critical issues in the United States today, certainly in California, is the classification of somebody as an employee versus a independent contractor or this concept of a gig economy, uh, a, a, you know, come as you go, come and work when you want kind of an economy. And I think from a social standpoint, it's an incredibly important issue because I think that um, classifying people as independent contractors provides no safety net. Um, there's no unemployment insurance. There's no social security insurance or social security being paid by the employer. There's no workers comp benefits, arguably, if someone's truly an independent contractor. And that doesn't provide a safety net. It also doesn't provide people with the security if they have a job. Now, there's plenty of people out there that disagree with me and they'd say, no, this is great because people can come and go as they want, work when they want to work. And I understand that. But the problem is, and this comes to the core of the whole issue, is how many hours a week before you're an employee? I mean, I get it. If somebody decides that a weekend here and a weekend there, they want to pick up a few extra bucks um, doing, you know, five or six hours of driving from eight o'clock at night until two in the morning. Um, that's, that's one thing. But if you're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week driving people for Uber, Uber's making money off of you. Uber's telling you what to do, how to act, where to pick up your, your rides, et cetera, et cetera. That sounds an awful lot like a job to me. 
And that's why I believe this is an important issue because I know that there, there must be a line out there somewhere. There must be a line at the number of hours that somebody converts from being a independent contractor, an occasional worker to someone who is truly an employee. And, um, the, the number here of these Uber drivers is there's, you know, not all of them fit in that category of working tons of hours. There's certainly plenty of them who fit into the category of, of being occasional workers or they did it here and there for a few months and they turned off the app and they never did it again. But there are plenty of people who make their living this way. And anyone who's been in an Uber car and talked to an Uber driver knows that's true. Sure. You mentioned at the outset that California employment law generally is fairly favorable to employees. How um, do the statutes look that bear upon this question? Has there been much action in Sacramento on, on this question as it, as it pertains to Uber or the gig economy generally? Well, one of the things I've said is that um, Uber had actually uh, gone in and hired just about every lobbyist that they possibly could in Sacramento who was willing to take their money and, and, and do their work. So Uber has done a very good job of um, keeping the uh, the lines at the gate, so to speak, by not having any adverse legislation enacted that would define exactly what an employee is under these particular circumstances. But there is case law, there is case authority that tells us when somebody becomes an employee and it deals with control, it deals with how much control the employer exerts over them, how many hours they work, what they do, how much they're told. And I personally think that the interpretation of California law comes in favor of somebody working a lot of hours as an employee of Uber. Now, there's been no case decision in a California court of appeal or the California Supreme Court that's defined this. And I predict that eventually it's not going to be the legislature, but it's going to be the California Supreme Court that comes down on the issue when somebody is an employee and when somebody is an independent contractor. And I think that if I were just calling the odds here, they're pretty good that if you're going to look at factors such as the number of hours worked a week and the amount of control that somebody who is working 20, 30 plus hours a week is going to be classified as an employee. And that's why I predict, at least in California, the current model of Uber is is not going to exist, say, four or five years from now. But before uh, any court can get to that question, um, at, at the moment, the Ninth Circuit is just uh, examining a more preliminary threshold question as to whether or not the class of Uber drivers can collectively bring suit or whether arbitration clauses in their contracts will force them to bring individual claims in arbitration. Um, what is the argument that has been advanced by your side as to why the these clauses don't mandate individual arbitration done by each driver? And I, I understand the Ninth Circuit has ruled upon this question last year, um, but in the intervening months, uh, there has been a, a different Ninth Circuit case, the Ernst & Young versus Morris case, which is now before the Supreme Court. I think your, your argument uh, as it relates to these arbitration clauses springs from some reasoning in, in that case. Is that right? Right. And, and what those cases effectively say is that, yes, you have the Federal Arbitration Act, but you also have federal labor law that um, says nothing can prohibit an employee from banding together and protecting their rights. And the argument in those various cases is that by forcing people into arbitration and by forcing them to abandon their rights to class action, you violated the um, NLRB rules, federal law and labor um and the protection of the employee. And uh, that case is going to be argued in the very beginning. I think it's going to be argued on October 7th in the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court. And uh, I can't predict how that's going to come down. I think I could have predicted a lot better how that was going to 
come down if um, Trump had not been elected president and there had been a different justice in the Supreme Court, I think it would have been a much clearer uh, likely win for um, the worker and the employee. But uh, that's, that's the arbitration issue. And um, even with an arbitration agreement, and if the arbitration agreement is held to be enforceable, ultimately what's going to happen is um, that under the statutes, irrespective of arbitration, there's going to be litigation brought that isn't going to be subjected to arbitration, either by a um, government um, attorney, whether it's a city attorney or the attorney general, or whether by a private attorney general, someone acting in the capacity of a private attorney general, will will tee that issue up and that issue will be determined. And I've been advocating for that for some time because I think this is the critical issue for employment law in California today. So even notwithstanding a potentially adverse result here in the Ninth Circuit, PAGA would provide a path forward for claims like, like these? Right. I think the PAGA is going to still be the law and still rule the day on this issue and provide the vehicle at least for uh, the, resol- the, the ultimate resolution of this issue in the California Supreme Court. Okay. Maybe just one last one for you. This is uh, obviously a, a huge case. It's very closely watched by lots of folks around the country. Uh, what, what is your sense as to the the nature and the significance of the impacts that, that this case and its eventual outcome will have on uh, class action law, the general uh, sharing economy, uh, and employment law going forward? Uh, it seems like it uh, could have some pretty far-reaching I- impacts. Right. I, I, I do agree. I think this is a, um, a far-reaching case for long-term effect in California, you know, sometimes some of the oddest cases produce the oddest law, but this is a straightforward case. Uh, and the outcome of it is, is I think, socially important. It's legally important. It's going to define when somebody becomes an employee, um, when somebody is an independent contractor. And the way I see this, um, perhaps in my own personal altruistic uh, view of things um, and the need to be, in some respect, paternalistic after the worker, is if this was allowed to exist, if this Uber model in its current form is allowed to exist, uh, I tremendously worry for the next generation of workers because um, how hard is it to imagine what would happen then where people in your law firm, for example, are all independent contractor type people or people at um, retail stores are independent contractors or all of the types of jobs where... Uh, we are concerned the most for our citizens, meaning, um, you know, not high paying jobs, mid-level jobs, uh, white collar, um, mid-level jobs, um, blue collar, mid-level jobs. More and more of these will become independent contractors because an employer would love this. They'd be love to be able to say, we don't have a long-term relationship with this person. We can cut them off whenever we want. We don't have to pay their social security. We don't have to pay unemployment benefits. We don't have to pay any benefits at all shifting it all to the employee, and then there's absolutely no safety net for those people. And I think that would be devastating to our economy. It would be devastating to the middle class and could have a huge long-term effect. On the other hand, if there are some guidelines put into place when people can't simply be called independent contractors, uh, then I think that that's going to make a big difference and that's going to continue to provide um, that safety net because it's easy today for people to say, it would sure be great to have the independence of being able to come and go when you want from your job, but um, like everything, everything that sounds good um, isn't always as good as it sounds, and if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. 
Okay, obviously issues and concerns of, of seismic dimension as they pertain to the, the legal and economic and, and civil landscape that we'll have after the resolution of the, this litigation for now. Brian Kapitek of Kapitek Brown Kellner, LLP. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. As we just heard, the argument that the O'Connor class has briefed to the Ninth Circuit will likewise be posed this fall to the U.S. Supreme Court by attorneys arguing on behalf of classes of employees in three consolidated suits involving the enforceability of individual arbitration clauses. Those consolidated cases are Epic Systems v. Lewis, Ernst & Young v. Morris, originating in the Ninth Circuit, and NLRB v. Murphy Oil. The resolution of the suit's core question whether NLRA provisions ensuring employees' rights to act collectively trump the Federal Arbitration Act's general presumption in favor of the alternate dispute mechanism has truly colossal importance for employment and class action law going forward. Here to further unpack the question is Chris Baker of Baker Curtis and Schwartz PC, who filed an amicus brief in the matter supporting the employee's position. Mr. Baker, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. You have filed an amicus brief in support of the employee position in these cases and the consolidated cases before Supreme Court. Namely, that position is, uh, in essence, that the the National Labor Relations Act uh, guarantees employees the right to act collectively to advance and protect their their rights and their interests. and that class action lawsuits are squarely within the uh, the type of collective action foreseen by the NLRA. Um, before we get to kind of the meat of that argument, I wanted to just ask about the individual on whose behalf you, you filed this amicus. She's, uh, of course, not one of the members of the, the classes involved in the cases themselves, but she's Susan Fowler. She was a software engineer for Uber until voicing pretty publicly and passionately her concerns about the company, the workplace environment, its practices, its ethos, obviously has some interest in the determination of this legal question. Tell me a bit about uh, Ms. Fowler. Um, she had a poor experience at Uber. She uh, wrote a blog post about it, and and it had some fallout. No. Talking about the central issue of this case, whether or not employees um, need to to bring their grievances against the company individually in arbitration or if they can act collectively in in class actions in court, obviously that question turns on a particular clause in employee agreements under which employees agree to arbitrate individually. That sort of individual arbitration waiver, that has become pretty common in in employee uh, contract agreements, right? It's become extraordinarily common in employment agreements, and that is because of the class action waiver, especially for larger employers. The only way they can prevent class actions or or prevent collective actions in their mind is to have an arbitration agreement. And given the advantages of preventing collective or class actions, uh, the cost of an arbitration agreement is is smart. It's like purchasing insurance. It can be more expensive for the employer on an individual basis, but they prevent aggregated claims. Okay, now we've had three different circuits in which these cases have wound their way through. Uh, a couple have sided with the, the employee position, finding that these sorts of uh, arbitration clauses cannot be cannot be enforced. One has sided with the employer um, can you tell me a bit about the, the procedure before the Supreme Court has gotten a chance to weigh in on, on these cases and if any other circuits have also weighed in on this, this question? So the Fifth, the Eighth, and the Second Circuit have sided with the employer. Um, the Sixth 
the Seventh and the Ninth Circuit have sided with the employees. But interestingly, both the Second Circuit, judges in the Second Circuit and judges in the Fifth Circuit, uh, have expressed, I'm not going to say regret, but have expressed their belief that they would likely have come to a different conclusion um, uh, if they had a chance to do it again, as opposed to following precedent. So the, so the weight of the, the appellate court judiciary is, is in favor of the employees, I think it's fair to say at this point. Was that voiced in, in concurrences and those opinions? That's right. It was voiced in a Second Circuit opinion and also in a recent Fifth Circuit opinion. Gotcha. Uh, that if, people were, if, if these judges were writing on a clean slate, uh, they would go with the Seventh and Ninth Circuit opinions. Getting into the argument itself, it turns upon the, the National Labor Relations Act. Which uh, portions of the act are specifically invoked, and what do they uh, provide for? So, um, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act gives employees uh, the right to engage in, quote-unquote, protected concerted activity for the purpose of mutual aid and protection. Section 8 of the NLRA says um, an employer violates the NLRA if it violates Section 7 rights. And then there's another labor law statute that's implicated by the case, uh, the North LaGuardia Act, which basically says that yellow dog contracts, um, which are described as contracts that require employees to give up the right to engage in concerted activity as a condition of employment, are illegal. Because back in the 30s and 40s, that's what employers were doing. They were saying, if you want to work for us, you can't join a labor union. That Section 7 language referring to collective action and uh, union formation and, and bargaining collectively doesn't specifically mention or provide for class action lawsuits, but in, in the brief that you write in support of the employee position, you argue that essentially these class action lawsuits are sort of the 21st century equivalent of collective bargaining, of, act, of acting in a concerted manner, sort of the, the 21st century equivalent of what NLRA had in mind. But uh, the language itself doesn't exactly mention them explicitly, right? Well, no, the, the language doesn't say employees have the right to bring class action lawsuits, right? Um, but the idea of collective litigation has been around since old English law. And the idea that when the statute was first passed, um, that an employer could still prevent employees from joining together to petition the government or to petition a court you know, certainly would not, would have been encompassed in the original language. I mean, uh, collective litigation is an activity, and the statute protects concerted activity, and um, collective litigation is also, quote-unquote, concerted action, employees acting together. I think that even when the act was passed, it encompassed this kind of collective litigation. Um, I think what Susan's brief says is that it's, so much more important now because of changes to the work. Some of those being that workers can tend to be maybe spread out across the country in different areas, not all coming to the one central factory or something like that. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's one big thing, right? Which is you know where are you going to put a picket line, mm-hmm. right? It used to be you would publicize the labor dispute by putting up a picket line. You would discourage employees from crossing, or not just employees, but also customers and others from crossing the picket line to frequent the employer's business or to perform work, and now there's no place to put the pickets um, because employees work from home or they work from Starbucks or they're driving around the city connected to their employer with a, 
with, with a smartphone, right? So the value of picket lines has decreased, um, which leaves this other component of concerted activity, which is going to be collective litigation. Uh, another central theme, another central argument in, in your brief takes on uh, a notion and an argument that's pretty reliably resorted to by employers when the idea of arbitration comes up that it's it's cheap and it's a cheap and efficient means to to settle individuals' claims. Um, you say pretty strongly that that's essentially a, a fiction that it's not cheap uh, or efficient. What, uh, what 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 is your argument uh, on this point? Well, my argument is that you know any any lawyer in the employment space knows that employment arbitration is not cheap. And I say this as somebody who was a defense lawyer for 17 years um, and is now does both defense work and, and plaintiff's work. Um, employment arbitration is super expensive, right? It's super expensive for the employer. The arbitrators are reluctant uh, sometimes to control the proceedings because they don't want their decision vacated because they failed to hear all the pertinent evidence. Um, under state laws, you get to do just as much discovery as you could do in a state court. And arbitration and arbitrators charged by the hour, charged by the day, and it can be $15,000 a day. So this idea that, oh, yeah, arbitration, it's uh, this really cheap and super easy way for us to resolve our cases is just hogwash. It's it's not true. And and people who get up there and say that it is true um, – don't know the facts on the ground, but are rather relying on old legal opinions um, back in the day when when it probably was true, right? When it was labor arbitrations and you have the union on one side and the employer on the other and you went in there and you put on your case and it was done. But that's not how it works anymore. It's, it's just not. Arguments about the, the efficiency of arbitration policy arguments are certainly not the only ones that employers will bring to bear in this suit. Um, Probably the, the central rebuttal of the employee's claim is the the Federal Arbitration Act um, provides for sort of a presumption in, in favor of arbitration. The Supreme Court, uh, pretty uh, it's pretty well known that it has generally smiled upon the practice of arbitration, especially within uh, the tenure of Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, could you unpack for me the the employer's side, the, those, those employer arguments, and sort of what the, the counters are for the plaintiffs in, in the face of um, a general policy of favoring arbitration based on the, the Federal Arbitration Act? Yeah. I mean, the employer's best argument is that the presumption in favor of arbitration is so strong that it cannot be overcome unless there is a federal statute that says the Arbitration Act does not apply to this statute. That's their argument. Um, and the response to that is, one, that's what the NLRA says, because you know it, it outlaws yellow dog contracts, which prohibit contracts that prevent collective action. And two, um, there is a savings clause in the Federal Arbitration Act, which says that it doesn't apply when faced with generally applicable contract defense. You know, I think it's interesting um, because I think that this is one of those cases where everybody assumes your con your traditional five four split. You know, but I think I think this is more of a legal argument than a political one, and I think the legal argument is better for the employees and for the National Labor Relations. 
agreements and arbitration clauses like this will often have opt-out clauses that allow employees to, to refuse to forego their right to class action claims. Uh, to what extent do you think that opt-outs could undermine the employee's position, the reliance on the NLRA? How would opt-out provisions affect kind of the legal calculus and, and the, the arguments in this case? It doesn't really save the arbitration agreement because you're still uh, making somebody waive prospectively their right to engage in concerted activity. And even Supreme Court precedent is pretty clear that you can't use arbitration to obtain a prospective waiver of a federal or state right. And that's why arbitration agreements that like try to shorten the statute of limitations are invalid, for example. Um, you can't you can't change the law or have prospective waiver of rights as part of an arbitration agreement. You mentioned uh, political dynamics. One salient one here is that the Solicitor General's office has changed its position on this case. The Solicitor General has now um, decided to reverse course and support the employer position in this matter. That That's not a particularly common occurrence, is it? It is not a common occurrence, but it's not unusual. I mean, it, it happens sometimes when there's been a change in presidential administrations, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I think, you know, the impact of it is, is it negates any force that the, uh, that the brief of the Solicitor General has, right? Um, the court's going to kind of roll its eyes and say, well, it's politics, right? Of course. Um, and it's going to be more focused on what the parties are saying. And in this case, what the, what the NLRB is saying, right? Because you have the NLRB seeking to, uh, uphold its rule while the Department of Justice is saying that the NLRB is wrong. So it's just kind of a, okay, politics. I, I don't think that that uh, the court will pay too much attention to the Solicitor General's brief, uh, which, you know, in a lot of ways just kind of repeats arguments that the parties have already made. Okay, maybe just one last one. Uh, if you could give me a sense of how far-reaching you think the impacts of the eventual determination of this case could be. It seems like employers are putting quite a bit of stock into the enforceability of clauses like this. So if the employee position were to prevail, it seems like it would really be a, a bit of a seismic shift in employment law and, uh, and class action litigation. It would make class action litigation easier because right now, you know, the first thing you have to do is get over the class action waiver. Right. So, for example, take all of the cases against Uber. Um, those cases, you know, which are which are great cases, haven't gone anywhere, um, really, because the first thing that Uber does is say, "Ha ha ha, class action waiver, you're stuck," and then you spend three hours, three years fighting about that. And so, if you clear that procedural roadblock, um, you know, it's going to make everything go much quicker. And I should also say, it's going to make companies get their act together with respect to making sure they comply with the law, right? Because they're not going to want to face the, the, the aggregated liability. And right now with these class action waivers, you know, the employers say, yeah, we might be breaking the law, but so what, right? It'll be, you know, one person brings an arbitration. We either settle that or we, um, fight it all the way through, but it's not going to have any impact on us and it's not going to have any impact on our business. These, uh, these cases are set for argument. I think we're pretty early on in the term. So we'll, we'll have, um, uh, our answer to how this case is going to turn out uh, soon soon enough for now. Chris Baker, Baker Curtis and Schwartz PC. Thanks very much for being on the podcast to chat about it. I appreciate it. I was happy to be here. California Supreme Court is entertaining class action appeals of its own, including one that will determine when and if courts using 
California lending law, have the jurisdiction to declare unconscionable high-interest personal loans, especially those with payment plans that set borrowers on course to repay multiple times the principal amount they were lent. California statute set a certain maximum interest rate limit on loans under $2,500, but for those over that amount, like the $2,600 loans peddled to high-risk borrowers by the defendant, in this case cash call, state law does not provide any specific ceiling. Instead, it merely forbids loans that are deemed unconscionable. But a federal district court that considered the question before the Ninth Circuit certified it to the California High Court granted cash call summary judgment on the premise that courts would effectively engage in economic policy, best left to the legislature, if they were to declare some hard limit on loan interest rates. Here to discuss the question further is Jim Sturdivant of the Sturdivant Law Firm, lead counsel in the case who argued it before the Ninth Circuit and is now briefing the case to the California Supreme Court. Mr. Sturdivant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So uh, the case here, De La Torre versus Cash Call, tell me a bit about the defendant uh, in the case. Its name gives some indication of the sort of trade that it, that it applies. I think folks may see their commercials on late night uh, television. This company um, provides loans typically to, uh, to lower income and higher risk borrowers, correct? Yes, it does. Then the question here, whether or not there's a certain limit to the types of interest rates that they can assign to the loans they provide, whether or not California courts could deem some set rate, in effect, too high based on California lending law. Uh, is that uh, essentially the, the question that will be before the California Supreme Court? Yeah, that's the, that's the question that's, uh, that's presented to the California Supreme Court uh, in this case. Throughout the litigation, which began in July of 2008, uh, the plaintiffs have framed the issue uh, not simply of the very high interest rate that cash call uh, charges um, on these loans of twenty of it of twenty six hundred dollars, but the uh, repayment terms as well. Cash call's loan product is twenty six hundred dollars and above uh, now at interest rates uh, of one hundred and thirty five percent or above for three and a half years. To give your listeners an idea, if a borrower paid out a $2,600 loan for the full three and a half year term at 135%, the borrower would be paying uh, a little more than four times the principal amount or more than $11,400. You mentioned that that number is a common loan provided by by cash call of $2,600. It's not an accidental figure. Loans under $2,500 in California, as I understand it, do have a limit applied to them, a certain interest rate limit. I think it's in the neighborhood of 20%, but uh, above $2,500, there's no set express limit to the interest rates that companies can charge. uh, What's the rationale uh, for having set limits for those smaller loans under $2,500, but not having them for larger ones, like the ones that cash call provides? Uh, I think the, the, the common sense rationale uh, was that uh, lenders making smaller loans would be sharply regulated uh, by California agencies in terms of their loan products, and that uh, lenders who loan money at $2,500 and above would be subject to uh, regulation by the courts and challenges like the one made in this case as to whether their loan terms uh, individually or in combination were unconscionable under established California law. So we could dive in specifically to the claim brought in this case. So if there's no statutory express limit to the amount 
of interest rates that a company can charge than claims like the ones here where plaintiffs are saying uh, certain higher interest rates are just unconscionable. That's the basis upon which plaintiffs stand. And that's because in the same lending laws where the $2,500 and under interest rate is regulated, there's also some express provision saying that the general rules of unconscionability do apply to those those higher value loans, right? Yes, uh, the, these loans are subject to uh, what's called the, the California Finance uh, Lenders Law, and uh, that law specifically says that with respect to loans twenty five hundred dollars and above, those loans are subject to California's law of unconscionability, for which there's a separate statute. Uh, in the civil code, uh, and which is applied uh, generally to all sorts of uh, business acts and practices for uh, many decades. How does uh, how does California civil law con- conceive the notion of unconscionability? What are some of the the provisions in in the, the statutes pertaining to that doctrine? Right there, there are two fundamental uh, uh, factors for for courts to consider. One is a procedural element, and the other is a substantive one. On the procedural side, uh, as applied to our case, courts look to determine whether the the loan is adhesive, that is, whether it's presented to the borrower on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. So the loans provided uh, to borrowers by cash call uh, online or, uh, or through a writing are presented uh, uh, just in that fashion. In other words, the borrower doesn't have any opportunity to say, I want a different interest rate, I want a different uh, repayment term. Um, uh, the borrower is limited to, uh, required to borrow at least $2,600 and to pay the prescribed interest rate by cash call for the three and a half year period. Um, the evidence in this case, which we presented on summary judgment, were that many borrowers came to cash call and said, well, we don't need $2,600. We only need to borrow $500 or $800 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cash call said, uh, we won't loan you any less than $2,600, um, but you can pay it back um, you know, as quickly as you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, cash call uh, the evidence also shows that cash call was loaning to people with FICO scores of, I believe, at 600 and less. So the most uh, vulnerable borrowers in our society in California, the people who are least able to repay the principal in full, you know, within 24 hours, let alone three and a half years. The second or, or substantive factor for unconscionability is whether the loans are overly harsh, are they uh, uh, unre- are they beyond unreasonable? Uh, and various phrases have been uh, articulated by the California Supreme Court, but I think um, uh, I think the one that uh, uh, probably is in the middle and resonates most is, are they overly harsh? So, if you look at a loan uh, of 135 percent. Um, you would compare that with other benchmarks in society at the time these loans were being made, that is, uh, prior to July of, of uh, 2011, um, the uh, federal funds rate, which is the rate at which uh, the federal government loans uh, money to the largest banks in America, was a quarter of 1%. So 
So uh, these loans, the cash call we're making, were uh, you can multiply uh, four times 135, uh, more than 550 percent of the the Fed funds rate. So in analyzing whether uh, just the interest rate is overly harsh, uh, you would have to do some comparators with what borrowers could make if they were borrowing at credit card rates or they were borrowing at home interest rates, home equity rates, uh, and then and then account for the factor that those loans are secured, whereas these loans are not. But just to add one additional thing, Cash, cash Call took all of that in into account um, in its in its loan product. The evidence that we've uh, uncovered and will present a trial if we win in the California Supreme Court. Uh, uh, demonstrates uh, uh, undisputably that Cash Call built a, a, a 40% plus acceptable default rate into its lending program. It knew that almost half of the individuals to whom it lent $2,600 would be un- unable to make all the payments required by the loan loan terms. And it also built into its program, uh, it spent uh, 20% of its revenue on advertising. So these were highly advertised, highly leveraged loans to the most vulnerable borrowers in California. You might note here, um, before we get deeper into the, the life cycle of this case, that a background tenant uh, of longstanding in Anglo-American contract law that folks generally should be free from government and court interference to contract as they, as they wish um, bringing this case that you've worked on for, for several years and presenting arguments, uh, that's sort of a, a notion that you, you do have to keep keep in mind, right? You have to argue against it a little bit. In your filings and in your arguments, do you, do you acknowledge that but still make the case that these particular contracts are really instances where a court and the government uh, should should have a right to an ability to step in? Well, the California legislature has made that determination, not me. Yeah. Uh or any of the lawyers. I mean, the California legislature has explicitly said that ca- that loans in California at the amounts of $2,500 and above are subject to judicial review for claims of unconscionability, uh, the very claim made in this case and the one that I've described uh, earlier in answer to your question. Um, the unconscionability statute in California flows from the equitable doctrine that has been at play in California since uh, California became a state in 1850 uh, and dates back to uh, equitable doctrines uh, in England going back uh, to the uh, 17th century. So it's not a new it's not a new doctrine. It's always been a governor, if you will, uh, on loan terms. Okay. Now, uh, the, the life cycle of this case, it, this... Uh case has yet to see trial, but it's been ongoing for a while. The class was certified in 2011, and initially Cash Call moved for a motion for summary judgment in 2014. Their first motion for summary judgment was denied uh, because the, the court, in, we're in a federal district court here, should note, um, that motion w- was denied, but then a renewed motion for summary judgment was uh, was granted. What was the district court's reasoning on both that initial denial and, and then a, a grant of summary judgment here? Well, the initial uh, denial was based on the fact that there are material issues of fact um, 
uh, between the parties that require a trial. It's a standard rule of uh, uh, California practice that if there are material issues disputed by the parties, uh, a judge can't make uh, uh, make a determination pre-trial. It has to allow that evidence to be presented and then make a decision after the fact. On reconsideration, Cash Call restated its prior argument, which the district court had initially rejected, which was that uh, uh, the court was without authority to determine whether these loans were unconscionable because to do so, she would have to determine what the interest rate should be. And to do so would require that she engage in economic policymaking, which was not for the courts, but the legislature. In granting that motion, it's our position that she completely disregarded the statute that governs the case, which says explicitly that these loans and the terms of these loans are subject to California's statute regarding unconscionability. It seems if you follow that reasoning uh, to its logical conclusion, then it would render that part of the statute sort of uh, without much meaning, if courts didn't have a, an opportunity to say when uh, something became unconscionable, then what would the the purpose of that that language in the statute be? Uh, it plays much more broadly than that, even Brian. I mean, it basically says if you if you can't engage in any kind of economic uh, consideration or decision making, that courts would be without authority to decide any issue. So uh, I can think of any number of examples where courts would have to consider cost bases, economic issues in deciding whether or not, for example, in an employment case, an employer could justify uh, a reduction in force, which is laying off uh, a whole segment of its employee base um, for economic reasons. Could that override uh, the prohibition in California and federal law that employer uh, employers can't act um, to discriminate on the basis of age or gender or race or whatever. So that's one example among many where courts uh, have to consider uh, the economic arguments that companies make uh, in deciding what the law should be in that case, what the what the result should be in the case. So the, the Ninth Circuit then hears this appeal you argued before the panel, um, and it decides to certify this question to the California Supreme Court, uh, whether there's some ceiling uh, implied by the unconscionability element of the, the statute when it comes to loan interest rates. Uh, it sounds like pretty squarely an issue of California law. It's also one that hasn't been squarely addressed before, right? Uh, it's been addressed, uh, but not for 32 years. Uh, the, the issue was considered... Uh, again, not on any kind of evidentiary record, but just on the allegations in a complaint uh, in 1985 in a case called Purdue versus Crocker National Bank uh, regarding the charges that uh, a national bank could impose for late payments uh, made on deposit accounts. Uh, and the court said that the doctrine of unconscionability could be asserted uh, affirmatively by the uh, by the bank customers in that case. But the California Supreme Court hasn't considered the doctrine of price unconscionability, which is at play here uh, since 1985. 
to unpack a little bit further the arguments that you have presented and will present before the California Supreme Court. Uh, so it, it sounds like your your main argument is that if there is this language in the, the lending statutes that say uh, loans may not be unconscionable, then there must be some loans with certain interest rates that are so high that they do qualify um, under that definition as, as unconscionable. Correct? So uh, if that is the case, the courts must be able to say where that line is. Is that one of the, the main arguments? The issue before the California Supreme Court is, does a trial court, uh, state or federal, apply in California law, um, uh, have, the, have the right and the obligation to determine whether a loan is unconscionable? Okay. And our view is that uh, the legislature uh, uh, squarely gave that power to courts and that uh, the interest rate is one of the loan terms here, but obviously the term of repayment is another. So uh, maybe if somebody loaned what's called a payday loan and charged uh, 50% interest for uh, two days, uh, maybe that wouldn't be considered unconscionable. But a 50% loan or 135% loan for three and a half years which results in a repayment of more than four times the principal amount of the loan, uh, we, we argue, and, and we hope the court would agree, that's unconscionable. That's overly harsh. It sounds like there's a, 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 some a useful precedent that has been cited by your side, a, a case named of Carboni. Uh, what, uh, what went on in, in that case? Well, Carboni uh, involved a... Uh, uh, commercial loan, but I believe the, the facts in Carboni was that the uh, the loan was uh, uh, the loan interest rate was two hundred percent, and uh, the California Court of Appeal, which is the court level uh, directly below the California Supreme Court, uh, said that those loans could be determined to be unconscionable. So we have argued that uh, uh, Carboni is another example in California uh, case law, where courts have said under the California unconscionability statute, courts uh, uh, can and do determine whether uh, interest rates are unconscionable. Uh, on the other side, what, what is, if, if cash call is saying that courts don't have the ability to weigh in, they don't have the, the jurisdiction to say when the, the that line of unconscionability is crossed, uh, whether or not that has happened in this case, um, then what do they make of the unconscionability portion of the, the lending statutes? Are they just saying they're um, essentially null? Are they saying that the fact that there's just no set number in the lending statutes mean that a any amount of interest is okay, 50, 100, um, even, even higher? How, how do they reconcile those seemingly maybe not totally compatible notions? Well, the first argument they make is that uh, you know loans of twenty five hundred dollars and above uh, were deregulated uh, uh, decades ago when the California legislature de de decided to set a dividing line between loans less than twenty five hundred dollars and loans twenty five hundred dollars and above, uh, sharp sharply regulating uh, the loans below and not specifically regulating. The loans above. They then make the additional argument that uh, courts are not authorized and, in fact, are ill-suited to make uh, unconscionability uh, determinations. 
uh, and therefore uh, the party should be able to, uh, you know, enter into contracts, uh, uh, and it should be up to the borrower to uh, decide whether or not uh, uh, she or he can uh, or should enter into those contracts. And uh, third, they've argued that no California agency has uh, stepped in to uh, regulate these loans, and that's an indication that the loans uh, should not be regulated. Um, do, do you have a sense, or do you have? Um, do you, are you familiar with how this particular question has been treated, if it has been treated at all by other states around the country or at the, the federal level, whether um, for loans of this variety there is some threshold interest rate level that becomes unconscionable? The, um, uh, the issue hasn't been... Uh, uh, broadly litigated uh, uh, throughout the country in terms of uh, price unconscionability. Um, it has been litigated in the state of New Mexico. Uh, there's a case that we cited at our opening brief to the California Supreme Court in which the, uh, the, uh, the New Mexico Supreme Court uh, agrees with our position, that is, that the doctrine of unconscionability comes into play uh, on price uh, unconscionability, and courts are vested with a plenary authority to make those those determinations. An intermediate uh, appellate court in Wisconsin uh, came to this came to the same conclusion. But there aren't there aren't a lot of cases. There are some other ones in California, uh, but there aren't a lot of cases around the country uh, that have dealt with this issue. So we're uh, we think it's a good thing that the California ha- uh, Supreme Court has agreed um, to decide this question, and we hope that its decision uh, will resonate throughout the country. Sure. Okay, now, the fact that it is before the California Supreme Court was a bit of a, a left turn in this case. You had been in federal court for several years. Um, does that change your approach when all of a sudden the, the question is certified into a different court system? How, how do you... Um, do you have much of a sense about how the California Supreme Court might uh, might feel about this, this type of case, this, this type of question? Well, we think that the California Supreme Court is going to agree with us. Um, uh, we think that might be influenced by the evidentiary record that we develop below, uh, and that would have, uh, but for the, 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 the federal district court's uh, change of mind, would have enabled us uh, to go to trial. Uh, but we we feel very uh, feel very positive uh, about the position that we're in, given the arguments that uh, that I've made to your audience. Okay, well, certainly a very important case. I know a lot of folks uh, in the state and around the country will be will be paying close attention. So we'll let you get back to working on it. Uh, but for now, Jim Sturdivant, the Sturdivant Law Firm. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. That, our show for September 2nd, 2017, is complete. Thanks very much for tuning in. It's much appreciated. And I hope especially that any listeners that tuned in via the new Daily Journal mobile site enjoyed it. Very happy to, of course, deliver the latest legal news via as many avenues as possible. For now, hope everyone enjoys their long weekend in Las Vegas. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.